Well, hey, good morning, and uh, welcome to Sojourn. Glad that you're here this morning. As uh, Theodore said earlier, is this your first time here? We're just grateful that God brought you here. We'd love to meet you and help you get connected, uh, and hope that uh, if you're either checking out church or looking for a new church community to be a part of, that you can find yourself being a part of Sojourn. And so if this is your first time here, we'd love for you to stick around for a few weeks and uh, just get to know us, and so we can get to know you as well. Excited to gather together this morning to continue on in our series in the book of Jonah. Uh, and so if you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, we'll have a couple of guys bring a Bible around too. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us out of God's Word this morning. So just keep your hand up until they find you. And please feel free to take that with you if you don't have uh, a Bible of your own at home or something like that. So uh, as we begin our time each week, we just want to go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless this time. So would you pray with me? Father, this morning we come before you as we continue on in this series in the book of Jonah, as we come to this last chapter in the book of Jonah, we pray just very simply this morning, Father, that you by the work of your spirit would convict our hearts. As I was thinking and studying and praying this week and working on this sermon, just there's just so much reality, so much truth that's in this text that we can look at, that we can understand in a a head knowledge kind of way as we dissect and look at Jonah's life. But Lord, I pray that that wouldn't be what we do this morning. I pray what we would do this morning is receive your word and be able to see our own lives reflected in Jonah's life. And that by doing that, that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts this morning, that you would bring about transformation in our lives this morning, that you would help us to be attentive to your spirit this morning, that we would actually listen to you. We listen to you, not the world, not our flesh, not what anybody else says that we should think or do, but what you, the holy God of all creation, has called us to. And so we pray for your spirit to work this morning as we open up your word, as I open up my mouth, that what would come out, that what would be received are not my own words, but words that have been anointed by you, by your spirit to impact and change our lives. And so we ask that you would do that work. That's not something I can do. It's only something you can do. And so we pray that you would do that today. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. When you were a kid, uh, what was the one thing that you did not want to get for Christmas or your birthday? Clothes, right? When you're a kid, nobody wants clothes. Maybe money. Maybe that's the other thing you didn't want when you were a kid. I remember one time my, my younger brother uh, he got money in an, uh, you know, a card or something like that. He's like, oh, great, more money. I mean, it's only at that time if we had understood economics as a kid, we would have told, held on to that, maybe done something more with it than just toss it aside. But kids typically get these things, clothes or money, and are generally disappointed when they get these things and do quickly kind of throw them aside. Maybe mom and dad are excited about it because they got money or got clothes that they don't have to go out and buy, but the kids are a little bit disappointed, hopeful for what the next package might include that they get a little bit more excited about. Now, but what was the giver thinking when they gave this kid these kinds of presents? And I would guess none of them, or at least most of them, weren't thinking, I know, I'll give them something they don't want. In fact, in most cases, the giver purposely picked out this article of clothing or intentionally put some money in a card to bless this child with which they were giving this gift to, not with the expectation that this gift would be overlooked or discarded or even cause any disappointment in this child's life. Now, the situation with kids is kind of silly, right? And maybe it is even expected. I mean, how many four-year-olds really understand the value of a $50 bill? 
and think, you know what, this is going to help me with my long-term investment strategy in my life. Right? They're not thinking those kinds of things. And so we might expect that they would react that way. But there are other instances in life when something good happens, but maybe sometimes we get the opposite reaction of what we think should take place in the positive outcome of a situation. Well, as we get into this last chapter in Jonah, we see just that. Jonah has been through a lot. Jonah has seen a lot. And here, once again, we see disenchantment, this disenchanted follower that we've been following through his story. We see this disenchantment start to to creep back up in his heart once again as he wrestles with God. In this text, we see Jonah have kind of a Debbie Downer kind of moment here. Everybody should be excited about everything that's going on, but Jonah comes in and he just kind of reigns on the parade of what's happening here. In many ways, Jonah responds childishly to the grace and mercy of God that's given to sinners. What we saw last week as we looked in this text is that revival has come to Nineveh. That people have turned to God in faith and repentance. Revival has come and instead of rejoicing, Jonah becomes angry about it. But this anger is rooted in something a little bit more sinister, a little bit more subtle. This anger is rooted in resentment. And so as we jump into chapter 4 today, we're going to look at just these first few verses, verses 1 through 4 in chapter 4. And really, this week and next week are kind of a part 1, part 2 as we finish up the book of Jonah in chapter 4. And what we're going to see this morning is a little bit more about Jonah, a little bit more about his heart, and next week we'll see a little bit more about God, and we'll focus a bit more on him. But what we'll see today is that much of what Jonah is struggling with, these things that he's wrestling with, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're willing to look at our own heart and our own lives, we'll see, I think, that all of us can struggle with these same kinds of things. See, in light of this look at Jonah and this look at ourselves, what I hope to do today as we end our time is really kind of paint a a, a picture, a vision for us as a church family of what it looks like for us to have a countercultural response to things that are going on in our lives as individuals and as a church and really as, a, as the, we find ourselves in this world right now. I think that the, the truth that we're going to see in this text is especially relevant in light of all that's going on in our world and our country. And so if you're new here, you're new to church, I hope this morning has already been con- and, uh, encouraging to you, compelling to you, and I hope it'll continue to be encouraging and compelling to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. I hope God's going to use this time in his word to draw you to himself, to help you understand more of who he is, and to see what he has called his people to do, what he's called us, his people, to do, and that you will find yourself wanting and compelled to join us in that. And so may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. We'll go ahead and open up to the book of Jonah if you haven't already. Again, like I said, we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 4 in chapter 4, but I want to start this morning by reading from chapter 3, verse 1 all the way through chapter 4, verse 4, just to remind us of what has happened so far in this story. So Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from, the, from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And what an interesting story this has been so far as we have followed Jonah. We've followed him in his disobedience. We've followed him in his rescue. We've followed him in his recommissioning. Last week, we saw that Jonah finally decided that he was going to listen to God, and he went to the people God had called him to go to originally to preach and proclaim the message that God had given him to preach and proclaim. And what we saw is, is that redemption and revival came to Nineveh. This great city, this wicked city, the people of the city repented and God relented from his divine destruction and disaster that he was going to bring on them because of their wickedness, because of their rebellion. And right there is the rub for Jonah. So we don't get a full picture of what happens after Jonah preaches and proclaims with what's actually really going on with him. Because for part of the story at the end of chapter 3, Jonah kind of drops out of view for a bit and it's just focused on this revival that's taking place with the people of Nineveh turning towards God in faith and, and crying out for mercy. So he kind of falls out of the story. But I imagine Jonah has preached this message and he sees this outbreak of revival taking place as he continues to go through the city. I mean, this is happening all around him as he's walking through the city and really out of the city. You can picture him walking out of this city and he's, he's thinking as he's watching this take place, as he's seeing people outwardly repent, which based off the word seems to also be outrooted out, uh, rooted in a, a re- legitimate repentance. And so he's walking out of this city deep in thought and he begins to be overcome by some dark feelings. Because how does Jonah respond? Verse 1 says of chapter 4, Jonah is exceedingly displeased. He's furious at what has taken place. We can translate the Hebrew here is that Jonah actually thinks what took place is evil. That he looks at this action that's taken place, that these people have repented of their sin, that revival has taken place, and he thinks it's evil. These people are at peace with one another and peace with God, and Jonah is throwing a temper tantrum over it. He's upset. But as I said in the introduction, this anger is rooted in something much more subtle, much more sinister. It's rooted in resentment. What does it mean to resent someone or something? To resent is to to feel bitterness, to to have indignation, to take offense at someone or something. 
And Jonah's resentment is multidirectional. He has resentment towards God and resentment towards others, in this case, in particular, the people of Nineveh. These two things really go hand in hand with one another. So let's take a closer look at this, this resentment towards God and resentment towards others. Where and how do we see this? The heart of God has been on display in this story. When we go all the way back to the very beginning, we see that God is the one that initiates contact with Jonah and calls him to go and preach and proclaim this message to this people of Nineveh. These people who are marked by wickedness, they're marked by death and darkness. A people who we've said are anti-God. They are all about themselves. They are self-exalting kind of people. And so God sends his prophet, he sends his messenger to them to warn them of pending judgment, both temporal and eternal judgment. And by so doing, it comes with an invitation to receive mercy and grace, to repent and turn away from their wickedness and turn to God, the one true and living God in faith. Now we can see all of this, we can read all of this, we can try to understand this, and we can maybe miss the point that this in and of itself is really incomprehensible for this to take place. That God would be gracious That God would be purposeful and intentional in sending one of his very own people to this pagan city. This group of people, hundreds of thousands of people who had no interest whatsoever in knowing or following the living God. That should be incomprehensible that God would do something like that. I mean, Jonah is God's workmanship. His workmanship that he saved by grace that he brought into relationship with him and has prepared good works for Jonah to walk in to advance his global glory. God's heart is for the nations. We see this on display in the story from beginning to end. His heart is for the nations, that they would know him and be known by him. God loves the seemingly unlovable. He redeems the seemingly unredeemable. This is what God does We see this in his word from beginning to end. We see that God is a pursuing God. When sin entered into the world, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, they hid from him, but God pursued them. Abraham was minding his own business, had no interest in knowing God, and God came after him. God pursued him. Noah had no no desire to know God, but God pursued him. Moses was running away, hiding from God, but God pursued him. David, even in his rebellion, God pursued him. Why? Well, because of the truth of Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul tells us about humanity and the dire situation that all of us are in. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. This is the total and pervasive effect of sin. That inside and out from head to toe, that sin gives us the spiritual inability to be able to even want to know and follow God. And that's the, rea- and the reality of that is very clear to us in this text and throughout the scriptures and really in our own lives. And it's this, that unless God intervenes, unless God steps into your life, you are lost. And so it's grace, magnificent, unfathomable grace that God, that holy God of all creation, that he seeks and saves anyone. Because there's not a single person on the face of this earth, past, present, or future, that in and of themselves is worthy of rescue. See, what Nineveh deserved was destruction, not mercy. 
But God made a way. He made a way, and through the mouth of his prophet and the work of his spirit, he brought redemption. That is a picture of grace upon grace. See, Nineveh wasn't looking for God, but God came looking for Nineveh. That's what he does over and over again. But see, God's grace we get a bigger picture of God's grace, God's grace is not just that he gives them an opportunity to come to know him. God's grace is not just that he provides this way if they're willing to take it. God's grace is that he opens the door and then actually brings them in. As one pastor said, grace is more than God just opening the door. It said he actually brings the people through that. He actually brings them into a relationship with him. See, I think sometimes when we think about sin and our predicament and our separation from God, we can think about it as if we're someone in the water who doesn't swim very, very good, very well, very good, whatever. I'm a pastor, not an English teacher. Um, you know, we can think about being in the water and we're, we're just struggling. We can swim a little bit. We're not, we're not, just not great at it. And so we're, we're struggling a bit. And so God's, hey, this is what you need to do. And this is how I'm going to show you what to do. This is, he's just giving instruction for us. The reality, though, of what our state is, is that we're not someone just struggling in the water to swim. We are passed out below the waves, drowning. And God doesn't just throw a life preserver into the water and say, hey, grab onto that if you want. No, God reaches down into the water and he grabs onto us by our neck or our hands, whatever he does, and he pulls us up out of that water. And he breathes life into our water-filled lungs. And he replaces our dead heart that isn't beating anymore and he gives us a new heart that beats for him and his glory no longer our self-glory see it's all of grace a holy undeserved gift given by a holy unwavering god god is committed committed to seeing people from every tribe every language every nation coming to know him and be known by him and he does it by pursuing those people and in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, Jonah was thankful that that's who God is. Because Jonah had run from God. Jonah had sought to go his own way. And Jonah had pursued what he wanted to. And God came after him. And he brought trial into Jonah's life. And through that trial, he brought redemption into Jonah's life. And so in chapter 2, as we looked at, Jonah gives worship and praise and thanks that God saved his life. But now he's angry that's who God is. He says in verse 2, this is why I ran. This is why I fled in the first place. I knew you would do this because I know you and I know who you are. See, Jonah gives a common description of God's character and attributes. We even read it this morning from the book of Joel. It's all throughout the scriptures, a description that God's people have used over and over and over again to describe God. And the way we have that description is because God told us about himself in this way. In the book of Exodus, God reveals himself to Moses and says, this is who I am. And so Jonah here gives this common description. He says, God, I knew you would do this because you're a gracious God. You're a merciful God. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You relent from disaster. So what's the problem with Jonah then? Jonah thought God was being too gracious. He's being too merciful. He's giving too much love. He is really being too slow to anger. The attributes of God that have been praised for generations and generations in this moment are turned around 
And instead of being a source of praise, they become a source of complaint against God. Jonah was angry with God about grace. I think Jonah, in some ways, is taken aback by grace. He's surprised by it. He's even offended by grace. Because Jonah has forgotten the, the grace of God towards a wretch like him. He forgot. Because the reality is, in Jonah's life, is he's experienced every single one of these characteristics of God in his own life. So the disenchantment is back in Jonah's life. Maybe it was never fully gone. See, I think disenchantment in your life and my life is always maybe there, just below the surface. Always lurking and waiting and seeking someone to devour. And in his disenchantment and resentment, he responds in really two ridiculous ways. The first thing he does is he undermines his repentance. He he seemed to repent back in chapter 2, but now he's really undermining his repentance when he gives an explanation for why he ran in the first place. And notice what he does, he's blaming it on God. He's blaming the situation on something else, not taking ownership in his own life. See, when you and I acknowledge our sin, when we're sorrowful over our sin, but then whether it's a moment later, a day later, a week later, we start to justify why it was that we did that particular thing in the first place, we undermine our repentance. We may say, as Theodore even said this morning, we can kind of give lip service to our sorrow, but then we give reasons why we did it. I'm sorry, but it was because I was tired. I'm sorry I did that thing or said that, but it was because of what you said. It's what you did. You you pushed me to do that. I'm sorry, but I just, I've had a bad day today. We need to understand that true repentance before God and before one another is simply, I sinned against you and I am genuinely, truly sorry for that. No explanation, no justification needs to be given. So Jonah undermines his repentance here as he starts to talk about why he did what he did. But the second ridiculous thing he does is he wishes his life and soul would be taken. This is crazy. He says he would rather die than see revival take place. He'd rather die than see revival break out. In chapter 2, he had thanked God for saving his life, and now he's asking God to take his life. Why? Because a whole city got saved. That seems crazy. It's ridiculous. See, resentment towards God is a temptation that all of us can deal with. All of us can struggle with this. Perhaps when you've gone through something challenging or a personal trial or some acute suffering in your life, your life you find yourself embittered toward God, questioning God, wondering how he could allow this thing to take place in your life, how he could do this particular thing in your life. All of us, I think, either have struggled or are struggling or will struggle at some point in your life. We really have to deal with this this resentment that takes place in our life as we start to question God. And I think that resentment towards God is particularly a special temptation for those who serve God. When I mean, I mean, all of us should serve God, but, but pastors and missionaries and leaders in God's church. Because we can start to think, the more I do for God, the more he owes me. The more that I sacrifice for God, the more he should help me. And I say that to you because I've been there many times. God, do you see everything that I've sacrificed for you? 
then this is what I get? God, do you, do you see how much of my life I've given to you? To the service of your people, the service of your church, the service of your mission, and this is how you repay me? It's in those moments that we can start to doubt that God is good here and now. We maybe believe God's good theologically. We can believe God will be good. We read, we read Revelation 21 this morning. That, that, that we know there's going to be a day that will come when there will be no more sin and no more suffering and no more death. But we really in those moments question, God, are you actually good here and now? See, resentment is a strange darkness that starts to creep up with its fingers and wrap itself around your throat and your heart and your life and pull you down. See, at the end of the day, Jonah resents God for being God. He knows everything about him, but he resents God for being God. And this resentment of God, I think, is directly connected to his resentment of others. If we step back here, we can think about this for a minute. Most pastors or missionaries or followers of Jesus, anybody who knows Christ, who understands the gospel, would long to see revival take place. I mean, I think most of us, if we're honest, we would love to just see one person come to know Jesus. We'd be elated over that. Just so excited about that. Longing to come to see someone come to know the living God. So why wouldn't Jonah rejoice at the revival he had seen taking place? Not even just that he had observed, but that he actually was a part of. He was the one that opened his mouth. They heard this message from him. Why would he be this way? Why would he not rejoice well, it's rooted really at the end of the day in his own self-righteousness. Because see, deep down, when Jonah looks at the people of Nineveh, he believes that he is more worthy and they are not. When he looks at their vileness and their viciousness, Jonah can't comprehend that God would actually want to extend grace to them. That God actually would extend grace to them. But God, don't you know what they've done? God, don't you... Don't you know who these people really are? And I think if we dig a little bit deeper down into Jonah's heart, there's something else that's there. Jonah is nationalistic. Jonah is prideful. Jonah is arrogant. Jonah is xenophobic. Jonah maybe even is racist. Because he looks at this foreign group of people and he believes that they are not worth his time or God's time. As one pastor said, Jonah was a nationalist of the worst kind. One who believes not only in defending his own territory and living for the benefit of his immediate kinsmen, but who, as a consequence of that, has a spirit of antagonism towards others and hopes that God shares his attitude. See, what he's saying in this moment is, God, I don't want these people to experience the grace that I've experienced. I don't want them. They don't deserve it like I do. They don't get it like I do. At his core, what was lacking in Jonah was a remembrance of who he actually is and who he actually was. His own experience of rescue and grace, that he wasn't worthy, that he didn't figure it all out. Because Romans 3.10 is true of all of us. It's true for Jonah too. He wasn't seeking God out. He didn't understand his need of repentance and rescue until God intervened in Jonah's life. Jonah was lacking imagination. Imagination of stepping back and trying to wrap his mind around what the God of all creation, the God who created everything out of nothing, who has all power to do anything, what he might actually do in the hearts of men and women, in the hearts of the people of Nineveh. 
And because of that, Jonah resented them. He looked at them with disdain. And in verse 4, God asks Jonah a pointed, heart-level question in response to his resentment, his response to this temper tantrum that he's, flowing, if, that he's throwing. And he says, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Now, once again, we find ourselves in this spot where we can look at this and watch Jonah here, and we can shake our heads. Man, what a fool. Why would he act this way? Or we can look at ourselves and ask, where am I like this? Where am I like Jonah? Where is there resentment in my heart right now towards God? Where is there resentment in my heart right now towards others? Do I do well to be angry? When there's resentment in our lives, whether towards God or towards others, it puts blinders on us where where we can't see very clearly. Maybe more of a blindfold or something where you can see a little bit of light, but really it just distorts everything for you. Something's clouding your vision. And when you do that, we tend to say and do ridiculous things just like Jonah. We, We operate out of fear or foolishness instead of faith. Believing that God does rule and reign over all things. And so are there things that have happened in your life? Are there things that are happening in your life right now where you resent God for being God? If you take an honest look and when you find that resentment, who's it aimed at? Who's it aimed towards? Are there people in your life right now that you resent? Maybe who've actually done something wrong towards you or wrong towards others. Someone in this world right now that you have resentment towards. And maybe sometimes you've had the thought that probably most of us have had, had at some point in time is, well, then why doesn't God just, why doesn't he just wipe evil off the face of the earth? I mean, we could all live in peace that way. Why doesn't he just destroy those people that are causing so much hurt in this world or so much hurt in my life? But when we ask that question, we also need to ask ourselves this question, then what would he do with you? See, sin is present and sin is destructive in this world. It wreaks havoc on relationships and people and things. But we know, as we read earlier, that there will come a day when it'll all be gone. It's all removed. But why not now? Why not now? Because God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Because of the truth of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-10, through 10, Where Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient. He's longing for more and more people to come to repentance that the nations would know him. Maybe he's being patient with you right now. Patiently waiting for you right now. Have you truly experienced this redemption and rescue? Are you running from God right now? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? See, Jesus went to the cross, not when any of us had figured out, but precisely because we couldn't. Jesus took on the sin of those who hated him. It was our sin. It was the world's sin that held him there. Jesus died for his enemies. So let me ask, are you willing to die to self when it comes to the spread of God's global glory and grace? 
Are you willing to die to self in those moments? And maybe your answer is yes, yes, I am willing to die. I'm willing and wanting for more and more people to come to the knowledge of the saving grace of Christ. Let me ask you a question, maybe press on you a bit more. What infuriates you right now in your life? What just makes your blood boil? Where do, where do, you, where do you get angry? Is it over in some kind of injustice in your life or injustice in this world? What just makes you so angry, rageful almost? Is it a murderer, a human trafficker, a rapist, a terrorist? Is God's mercy sufficient for those people? Can God's grace be effective in those people's lives? Do you and I get to pick and choose who God is merciful towards, or can we step back and think, man, we get to celebrate when he is? Because when we take an honest look at our own lives, we have to recognize that we are just as guilty of sin, just as guilty of rebellion, and just as capable of it as well. You and I have to trust God with judgment and with mercy, knowing that not one iota of evil will not be dealt with. Every injustice in this world, every evil thing that's been said or done in this world will be dealt with. It's either already been paid in full on the cross of Christ or it will be paid in full in the fiery judgment of hell. But all of it will be dealt with. But it's not up to us to decide who is worthy of this blessing and who isn't. Because the reality is no one is worthy. Not even us. We are all vessels of wrath. It is grace from beginning to end that any of us are saved. Grace from beginning to end that any of us become vessels of mercy. But let's press a little bit further. Last week, we talked about revival, how we long to see revival take place in our own hearts and in our own lives and our church community that would spill out into the streets, that that revival would lead us to see revival take place in Fairfax and in Northern Virginia and all across this world. But do you really want it? Do, do you really want the fruit of revival? Because what happens when those people get saved? What happens when that kind of person starts coming to gather with us in the church? What's your heart like? Are you welcoming? Are you wanting the, the stripper to come? Are you wanting the racist to come? Are you wanting the human trafficker to come? Do you want the gang member to take communion with you? Do you want somebody who came here on a mission to destroy this country to come to this table? Are you willing for that to take place? To see someone who's different than you come and be a part of this community? Do you have a place in your heart for the wicked to receive what you have? Do you have a place in your heart for those that are different than you to receive what you have? Do you have a place in your heart for those who have hurt you or could hurt you to receive what you have? See, with revival comes discomfort, both personally and corporately. Discomfort comes in that moment, but are we okay with that? Or is the strange darkness of resentment there? Has the dust of disenchantment settled on the eyes of your heart to steal the joy and awe and wonder of God's radical grace that anyone, anyone can be redeemed? See, nothing was wrong with Jonah's knowledge of God. Jonah's theology was right. He said, I knew you would do this. The problem is that Jonah was unpracticed in the ways of God. He didn't understand. He didn't get it. 
but didn't want to. So what do we do with all this? Brothers and sisters, I want us by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit working in our own hearts and our own lives, I want us to, to have a, a counter-cultural response in our community and in our world because right now there is great opportunity for us as a church to do just that. I, uh, I order my razors from Dollar Shave Club. So maybe some of you do that. And so if you don't know what that is, you, you basically pay a few dollars every month. They send razors to you in the mail. And with those razors that you get, there's always this little newsletter that comes with it. Um, it's called the Bathroom Minutes. So last month, there was, uh, there was an article in there. There's these little short articles. I guess you're supposed to read them while you're in the bathroom. But um, the, the name of the article was Friend Request Denied. And this was the subtitle of the article. Avoid never-ending disputes altogether by not befriending certain people in the first place. And this is what it says. The article says, don't be friends with your neighbors or your coworkers. So let me just read what, what the advice is to you. It says, human behavior specialist Shelley Chosak says that becoming buddies with the guy next, to- next door is dangerous territory due to your close proximity. She says, you want to make sure that becoming friends with your neighbor doesn't pressure you into spending more time with them than you'd like or doing things that you aren't willing to do. You can maintain a certain amount of distance by limiting conversations to five minutes. And if the chat starts to go long, Chosak suggests excusing yourself by saying, sorry, I need to go. I've got an appointment for an important call. Our culture doesn't like the idea of discomfort. Our culture doesn't like the idea of conflict or the possibility of discomfort or conflict. We crave comfort. We crave security, or at least the illusion of it. So, when we talk, so then we start talking about things like, hey, build walls around your life. Don't, don't let anybody in. Don't get too close to those people who might demand too much from you. So we build walls around our lives, we build walls around our houses, we build walls around our country. And we're scared, or maybe just standoffish, or maybe resentful, oftentimes towards a group of people that we've never actually met. Because someone told you you should be suspicious. Because someone told you that you shouldn't get too close. Because someone told you that you should be afraid. But listen, whether it's your neighbor next door or your co-worker across the hall or the refugee looking for help, we are told in our culture to guard. We're told to protect. Self-preservation is king in America. But friends, all of that is anti-gospel. And it's anti-God. Because God calls us to die to ourselves. God calls us to lay down any perceived rights that we have for the sake of his global glory. God calls us to arise and go. And God's heart is for the nations, no matter how heinous they are. This shouldn't surprise us. This is what God does. This is what God's people should be about. We see this in the story of Jonah. We see it all throughout Scripture. If you read in community Bible reading this week in the book of Acts, I love reading the book of Acts, just seeing God work in and through his people. He calls them in chapter 1 to go to, to all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, but you know what? They don't do it. <laughs> they like comfort. So they're just hanging back. So what does God do in chapter 8? He brings persecution into their lives and it forces them out. It forces them to flee. And as they flee, they take the gospel with them into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then we get to chapter 9 in Acts, and we see this man Saul, 
who later would be named Paul. This man, Saul, who is a terrorist. And interestingly enough, he's in modern-day Syria seeking to terrorize God's people, to arrest them, to throw them in jail, to see them beaten or even killed. But God intervened in his life. God changed Paul's life. He stepped in with unbridled and undeserved grace, and he saved Paul. What this tells me is that when we look out at the global landscape and see great atrocities and wickedness, we should not shake our heads in disgust and turn our backs. We should cry out to God and ask him to bring some redemption, to save some people. That that there would be another Paul on the road to Damascus right now in an ISIS caravan. And that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ would shine in his life and scales would fall off of his eyes and he would see that there's hope and there's joy and there's peace and there's life and it's not in what he's chasing after, it's in the living God who's come after him. There are billions of people in this world right now that don't know that good news. Billions of people have never heard of Jesus. There are thousands of people right now that want to come to this country fleeing for their lives, fleeing for safety, and they're just looking for some hope. And right now, what our country has said to them is, right now, right now, that's not available to you right here, right now. It's not available to you if you're from a particular place or if you're a particular group of people or have a particular culture. Maybe it's because of fear. Maybe it's because of resentment. Maybe it's because we don't trust God. Listen, I don't know what your political views are, but this is not a political issue. We as the church cannot stand by and do nothing and say nothing. We cannot be xenophobic. We cannot be nationalistic because our citizenship isn't here. It's in the kingdom of God. And God has called us now to go out to those around us. He has called us to welcome the stranger and go to the stranger because we once were strangers with no hope in this world, lost and alone. As one pastor says, the strongest love is not general benevolence to people, but a passion for the good of a particular person. That's what God did for you. God didn't just open the door for you. He saved you. He stepped into your life and he drew you to himself intentionally, specifically, particularly, and purposefully. So what this means is instead of saying, why them like Jonah did? We should look at ourselves and say, why me? Why me, God? Why did you save me? I don't deserve it any more than anybody else. Man, too often we have such a small view of our own sin, which means we have a small view of grace, which means we have a small view of God. Another pastor challenges challenges us. He said, churches must never be conditioned by the national environment rather by the word of the gospel. And the gospel compels us to go to all nations and all peoples here and abroad. That lines up with the heart of our God. That lines up with what we see in Scripture. Just this last week or two, I, was, I saw a tweet by another pastor in Nashville. He said, reading through the book of Acts, I was like, man, that's what we're doing together as a church right now. He said, reading through the book of Acts, it seems laboring for the salvation of the nations trumped working for the safety of the saints. The church, when they're being persecuted, doesn't pray for protection. They pray for boldness to go out. See, Sojourn, we have to understand that truly loving your neighbor is always at the risk of your safety. 
It's always at the risk of your security. It's always at the risk of your comfort. And that's okay because those are all false gods. Don't let anybody tell you different. The issue of resentment, whether it's towards God or towards others, always resides in our hearts. But instead of bemoaning and worrying and wringing our hands in disdain and disgust and disenchantment about how God works and in whom he works, what if? What if we step back and we fall on our faces in wonder and worship? What if we allow our imaginations to run wild with what God can do? What if we jump in with both feet to what God is doing, almost with reckless abandon, committed to rampant evangelism because we actually believe that God knows what he's doing. Because we actually trust that he's in control and he knows more about what's going on in our lives in this world than we do. What if? Might we actually get a taste of heaven, a more full and unhindered glimpse into the heart of God that sets our face aglow as we behold his glory shining in us and through us and overflowing to those around us? What if we just start this week by looking at ourselves in the mirror and looking at our eyes and looking into our hearts and looking into our own souls where there once was a heart of stone that was set against God, but now where there's a heart of flesh that beats for God and remember that you did absolutely nothing to deserve it and nothing to put it there. Ephesians chapter two says that you are dead in your sin absolutely dead, have no ability to know the living God, but God, being rich in mercy, made a way for you to be made alive in Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved, and that grace through faith so that you wouldn't boast about it, so you wouldn't stand and look at anybody else and think they don't get it like I do. And now you're God's workmanship, just like Jonah. That he has prepared good works for you to walk in. And maybe some of those good works are taking the good news of the gospel to a particular group of people that if you're honest, you're not quite sure that you actually want to receive that grace. But who we go to anyway, believing that even if they're different, even if they're our enemies, that they should hear the good news as well. That is God's call on our life together as a church. Sojourn, we can resent God, we can resent others, or we can embrace them both. What will you do? As we come to the table this morning, we're going to come to take a meal together that really is a gift to us because it shakes off the dust of disenchantment in our lives. It reminds us as we eat the bread and drink the cup that God is is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. If you're in Christ, you know this because you've experienced it in your own life and what Jesus has done for you. The bread is a picture of Christ's body broken for you. The the cup that we drink is a picture of Christ's blood shed for you. And so as you come forward this morning to eat and drink, may you lay aside all of your resentment whether it's towards God or towards others right now in your life, and may you receive grace upon grace, and may that then overflow in your life to those around you. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning because this is a testimony of how desperate we are for Jesus. 
And so if you don't yet know Jesus, we don't want you to come eat the bread and take the cup. We want you to take Christ today. We want you to ex- receive that gift as God calls out to you and calls you to himself as he's reaching down to pull you up. Would you respond in faith today? You can do that in your seat. Just pray that God would save you today. Just start there. And if you have questions about what that means or looks like, just please come talk to me or any of, any of our other leaders, somebody you came with this morning. We'd love to talk and pray with you. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or towards the back. Tear off a piece of bread, take one of the small cups to drink, and listen to what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. God, I just pray this morning that you would help us, that you would help us to see your ways, your perfect ways, Then we would see you as good here and now that we would believe that that's true. God, would you help us to see others as you do? Would you help just root out, God, resentment in our life, whether that's towards you or towards others, and would you replace that resentment with faith towards you and compassion towards others? God, we ask for your spirit to do a work that only you can do. Transform us and change us, O oh God, for your glory and for the good of others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.